are going to be in Romans today. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 25. So I'm going to talk more about this idea at the annual church business meeting in a couple of weeks. But I want to tell you guys that something that's been really uh, weighing on my heart the past uh, couple of weeks, month, two months, somewhere around, around there, is this idea of idolatry and worship. Um, you know, I doubt that anybody who hears this has a, a golden calf or a shrine or something like that actually um, set up within your, uh, within your house uh, and stuff like that. But we all worship idols of some kind. And it is one of the sins that is just drastically and majorly condemned throughout Scripture. All sin is wrong, right? I'm not trying to say that. But idolatry is talked about quite often, both in the Old and New Testaments, because we serve a God who is a jealous God, and no one's going to get his glory, his honor, but him. And when we worship an idol, whether that be a golden calf or something else, we are giving the honor, the glory, the praise to somebody and something other than God. And God does not stand for that. And so he talks about it quite often throughout all of Scripture. And today we're going to take a look at it um, as Paul talks about it in the book of Romans. And as I said, I'm going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And it reads like this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, let's, let's break this down. You don't have a note sheet, but if you did, number one would be a justified wrath. And I do want to encourage you if you're at home, uh, take notes anyway. Notes can be a great way to help keep your mind engaged in what is going on. And trust me, I understand since you're at home especially, there are a lot of other distractions, right? It's way easier to be on your phone when you're sitting on your couch than it is when you're sitting here in the pew. So I completely understand. Um, but it can help to take notes. If you are, number one, a justified wrath. A justified wrath. You see, we have a bad idea of what justice is, of what fair is. Um, I, was, I was reading um, an article the other day uh, about somebody who committed a crime. And um, they served some time in prison and stuff like that. And when they got out, they started talking about how it wasn't fair. They did the crime. It's, they weren't saying they were innocent. They did the crime. They were saying it wasn't fair because of the circumstances that happened before that. And a ton of comments and all that kind of stuff were all about, yeah, they're right. It's not fair. Just look at the circumstances that surround the crime that they committed. 
they shouldn't have to pay the penalty for that crime. And in human idea, that makes sense, right? It is unfair that their circumstances, they were dealt, as we would say, right? They were dealt a bad hand. And so we would say, yeah, they shouldn't have to serve it. And God says, no, what is just is there is a crime. There must be a punishment. So what's the crime that's been committed here? The crime is, first off and foremost, that God has revealed himself from the heavens. He has revealed himself to the world. Now you might say, um, he hasn't revealed himself to me. Take a look around you. I'm not saying the world's not evil. I'm not saying things work exactly as they should because, quite frankly, humans got in the way of that. We sinned and ruined a perfect world. But the natural progress and the natural progressions of the world still happen the way they were supposed to. And a creation demands a creator. If something has been created, somebody has to do it, right? I can't take out my phone, right, my phone right here and go... Wow, look at this piece of technology. It just spawned from the ether one day in my pocket. How incredible is that? No, somebody created this thing. And so what, the, what we see is that the fact that there is creation, even you and I, let alone the world itself, demands that there is a creator, and what it says is, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I hear a lot of people that go, well, what about people that are in, you know, the Amazon rainforest and they never hear the name of Jesus? Do they go to hell? Yes, if they do not worship God, they do. I don't have to like it. In fact, I don't like it. In my idea of fair, it's not fair. But see, the problem is it is not my idea of fair that matters. It is God's idea. And fair is you sin, there is a price to be paid. And you cannot feign ignorance. You cannot, you're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and go, I had no evidence of it. And he's going to say, I created everything. I created you. That is all the evidence you need. Now, so we don't have to like it, but it's there. God is evidence. The problem is we seek an explanation besides God. The problem is that we want to worship something else besides God because if we admit there is a God, then we have to admit that that God has set what right and wrong is, and then we have to accept that that is genuinely what is right and wrong, and if we do the wrong, there is a consequence for the wrong. So we, we have to back it up a few steps and go, let me either change who God is, create my own God, worship my own God, so that I'm no longer held accountable to what they say is right and wrong. And the God of this world in America as we stand is self. The main idol that we worship in America is self. I can create what is right and wrong in my book. Well, the problem with that is, if Maddie over there decides what is right and wrong in her book, and our right and wrongs don't add up, who is right? And you can say, well, as long as you're being individuals, it doesn't matter. But we're not individuals. We're married. I'm not an individual when I'm driving, because there are other cars around me. I'm not an individual when I'm in the store, because there are other people around me. I'm constantly, as are you, connected to people, whether they be family, friends, strangers, acquaintances, enemies. We are connected to other people. 
And if I say, well, what is right for me may not be right for you, but it doesn't matter because you just do what's right for you, well, then I can justify anything I want to do. I can justify walking into your house, killing your family, stealing your stuff, and go, it was, right, it was what was right for me. Right, that, that argument breaks down the moment you apply any form of logic to it at all. But the problem is we don't want to apply logic to it because the moment you apply logic to it, you have to admit there's a creator then. You have to admit that there is something more out there. Now, we may disagree on what that is, and today's sermon is not about proving the cause of Christ. But the fact of the matter is that there is a God. We try to find God in something else because we don't like the God who is and who was and who always will be. Because that God holds us accountable, very much like parents do, right? I have, I have two incredible parents, and they hold me accountable even now. I'm 29 years old, and I've been a pastor for, for almost six years. I've been married for three and a half years, right? And my parents still hold me accountable for doing the right thing. Yes, my life, quite frankly, would be a heck of a lot easier if they did not. But they do. We can't get away from it. We don't have to like it. But the fact of the matter is that God's wrath against humanity is justified because he has given us everything we need. The Bible, creation, us, the yearning within our souls for something more that everybody has, that we try to deny it or fill it with something else. We all have this yearning and God says, I am put a yearning for, for me in you, and you go somewhere else. So his wrath is justified. We don't have to like it. We don't have to be like, oh, it's great. But the fact of the matter is that it is true. Number two, if you're taking notes, number two, a terrible trade, a terrible trade. Most of you guys know um, that I love sports, right? And in sports, you can um, trade players, which I was talking to my sister about this last Sunday. Makes no sense, right? You sign, I sign a contract to play with the Philadelphia Phillies. It would never happen. I'm short, fat, and, and unathletic, so it would never happen. But let's say in an alternate universe, I'm six foot three and can run really fast and hit a baseball really far. So they signed me to a contract. And I expect to play with the Phillies for the next five years because I signed a five-year contract. And two years in, they go, hey, we actually like these players on the Cincinnati Reds more than we like you. But they really like you, so we're giving them your contract and we're taking theirs. That makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't. It happens. It happens in every sport, but it really doesn't make sense. And oftentimes when I see a trade go down, I go, boy, one team lost that trade. That's an awful trade for them. I'll give you another example of, of, of a trade just to really drive this home. In my family, um, at Christmas time and at Easter, uh, we do this massive trade, right? Mom and dad buy us candy or cereal and stuff like that, right? And we, we usually sit around their dining room table, and it's like the New York Stock Exchange. You're like, I've got three Reese's Cups. Who wants a Reese's Cup? And, and stuff like that, right? And me, I'm always trying to get Twizzlers, Swedish Fish, and Three Musketeers. I will trade almost anything for those three things, Right? And so what is a good trade for me, other people may, right, because everybody always wants, see, the great thing is, what mom does is just puts the same amount of each kind of candy in everybody's bags. Well, I hate peanut butter, 
I don't want to eat a single thing that's got peanut butter in it. But everyone else at the table, they love peanut butter. So me, I can get almost what I want because I'm the only one who's actually willing to trade the peanut butter. And you might say, wow, Sam, that's a bad trade. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to eat the Reese's cup anyway. I might as well get what I want for it. And then sometimes you have these great trades. Like, I would consider a great trade. I love Captain Crunch with berries. And somebody's like, Sam, you've got honey bunches of oats. It's disgusting. I'll give you my Captain Crunch with berries. And I go, well, yes, that's an excellent trade. Because I get what I want, they get what they want. Now, most of the time that doesn't happen because I give them to my wife because she likes those. But either way, trades happen all the time. Whether it's in sports, whether it's in candy, whether it's at the actual New York Stock Exchange, trades happen all the time. It shouldn't be that foreign of a concept to us. The problem is we made and make continuously a terrible trade. A terrible trade. You see, what it says in verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And it's the same in verses 22 and 23. You see, what we did was we said, I don't want to serve the omnipotent, all, uh, uh, I almost said all-powerful, that's the same words. Um, the omnipotent, omniscient, um, omnipresent, glorious, righteous, holy, just, loving, merciful, gracious, incredible God. I don't want to serve him. I would rather serve something that cannot help me in any way, shape, or form. Whether it is a fake God that we worship, whether it is a drug or an alcohol, whether it is sports or music, whether it is whatever in your life, family, friends, whatever, we would rather serve that ourselves than serve God. I was talking to somebody, and I may tick off a few people who are watching this, and I apologize if I do, uh, but it's the truth. I was, wa I was talking to somebody, and they said, you know, I pray to this person who died, not Jesus, obviously, or else I wouldn't have been, this wouldn't be the problem. It was their, their, their mother, right, who passed away. And, he, and they went, yeah, I pray to my mother. I know she hears me and she helps me. And I looked at this person and I said, no, she doesn't. First off, I don't know if she's in heaven or hell, never met her, don't know her. So I'm not gonna try to figure that out. You believe she went to heaven? I take your word for it. That's that right? I don't know her. But secondly, I do know this. No person who has ever died, none outside of Jesus Christ himself, hears your prayers or could do anything about it even if they could hear them. I looked at them and I said, "Why would you want to pray to a human who died when you could be praying to the God of the universe who wants to talk to you?" who wants you to call him dad, who wants to have a relationship with you, why on earth would you pray to anybody else? There is one person who has the ear of God, and that is Christ the Son who sits at his right hand. Why would you pray to anybody else or anything else? We pray in the name of Jesus to God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. All three members of the triune God, are, are Godhead, excuse me, are are present and accounted for when we pray. 
But the problem is we want to pray and worship other things. Now you might say, Pastor, I've never once prayed to, a, to another image. I've never once prayed. I've never once, uh, I hope you've prayed. I've never once prayed to my sports teams or anything like that. I understand. But the idea of an idol being a graven image, right? We would call them, my, my dad and I call them sacred cows because oftentimes the image that was made was in the image of a cow. Um, from Old Testament times, that's done and gone. In, in America, that's done and gone. We don't do that here. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are people, but it's a very, very small, small sect of people, tiny. So then we have to look at what is idolatry in America today. What constitutes idolatry? Well, here's idolatry. Putting anything above God. I don't care what it is. Sports, movies, entertainment, family, friends, um, alcohol, drugs, food, yourself, whatever. Putting any created thing above God, and I can say that because everything has been created except for God. God always was, is, and always will be. And so to put anything created above him is idolatry. I don't care what it is. I love my family. I have an incredible family. They are massively important to me. But to put them above God would be a sin. I love my wife. She's incredible. She's amazing. But to accurately and godly love her and, and, and be her husband, she cannot be the number one in my life. It has to be God. She's number two. But God has to be number one in order for me to actually be the man that she married, that she wanted me to be when she married me. Now you might say, Pastor, that's a bit strong. It is. But you know what happens when you put God number one in your life? Everything else starts to fall back into place. You see, if I put God number one in my life, I'm training in righteousness and I'm learning how to better love my wife, how to be the man she needs me to be. I'm learning how to better be the friend that my friends need me to be. One day, the father that my kids will need me to be. Right? You, you, everything falls back into place. And to drive this point home, to really make it something real to us, it's not in the PowerPoint. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22 tells us all idolatry, every kind of idolatry is demon worship. That's right. When you put your family above God, you are worshiping demons. Now you might say, Pastor, you don't know how true that is. You've never met my sister. No. But it is worshiping demons. It's worshiping Satan. To worship yourself, right? We live in a world, and especially in a culture in America, that screams, take care of yourself, self-love. You be you. The Bible says, no, become a new creation in Christ. Become one body with the rest of believers. When I put myself above everybody else, that's pride, that's idolatry, that's demon worship. This country's downhill trend started, and I'm not talking about political or anything like that. Just take a look at the world around you, especially in America. It started when what happened? We started putting self over everything else. When we started saying, I am the most important one. I am the most important one creates animosity between people. It always does. I don't care what it is. It always creates animosity, and it is self-worship. I can't do anything. 
Why would I want to worship myself? I'm useless. Why would I want to worship myself? And yet, I do. Now you might say, Pastor, if God is so against this, if God hates this so much, why does he allow it? He allows it because he loves us. And because he is desperate for us to come to him. And real love is not forced. If I forced Maddie to love me, it, she, it wouldn't be love. Right? Love is not a forced thing. And God says, I am desperate for you to love me because I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I created you. I put my very breath into you. You are my most precious creation. I do not need your love, but I want it because I want you. And we spit in his face and go, no, and then get mad when he says, fine, there are consequences for it, though, that you put on yourself, right? I can say when I was a kid, my sister and I, Christina and I, used to get in just terrible fights about things. I love my sister to death, but I have very rarely met somebody who can press buttons the way that she can. She knows exactly what buttons to press, when to press them, how hard to press them, so that she escapes unscathed. She's been good at it forever. Love her to death. It's what part of, part of what she's learned. Now, she has a great many other qualities that are very great. She is funny. She can be kind. She can be generous. She is loving, right? I'm not trying to be like, oh, my sister's horrible. No, but we were kids, right? And to be frank, my buttons aren't hard to find. And she found them very quickly, very easily. And quite often, she would do something, say things and stuff like that, and I would get mad and do or say something dumb. And when my dad got home, he would discipline me. And I would go, this is unfair, what did Christina do? And he goes, I'm not here to deal with Christina right now. I'm dealing with you. You did the wrong thing. You brought the consequences on yourself. We do the same thing to God. We, we spit in his face, turn our backs on him, and then when we find out that there are consequences for those actions, we go, God, this isn't fair. And he goes, it's the way it is, buddy. You decided this, not me. You decided this. Or as my dad would often say, we're not at the fair. And actually, quite frankly, it is fair because since God is holy and righteous, since God is sinless, it is incredibly fair that every single person who has ever sinned, which i.e. is everyone except for Jesus Christ, should go to the lake of fire. A place that was not created for humans but was created for Satan and his, and his followers. And the fact that he chooses to save anybody is the greatest act of mercy and kindness that's ever been done. And it is his love and his mercy and his kindness that stays his hand from destroying places like America the same way he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, the same way he will destroy Babylon in, at the end of the tribulation, the same way he destroyed Babel. You ever notice he very rarely destroyed places of rural country? God doesn't like cities very much. I think God's a country music fan. He's up there. He probably listens. He created George Strait just so he'd have something good to listen to. No, that's, that's a joke. But the fact of the matter is that it is his love and his mercy and that he is long-suffering. I keep talking about this on our Tuesday uh, afternoon Bible studies. His long-suffering is so great. I like to think that sometimes I'm long-suffering and I last like a week. And he has lasted for thousands of years. Putting up with evil. Putting up with people. His children who turn their backs on, them and, on him and worship somebody and something else. So let's apply this to our lives. You don't have to go tell anybody anything. 
Let's apply this to our lives, shall we? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go up there because we'll get ready for, for worship here, our last song. Um, first off, identify your idols. Identify your idols, right? We all have them. We do. I don't care how old you are, how young you are, how much you study the Bible, how much you um, 